and uh, we are going through First uh, Thessalonians and then Second Thessalonians, Lord willing, as we get into the week. Hope you get through chapter four tonight. That's uh, where we're we're headed in our study here. So uh, we are on page thirty-two, and we are picking it up at First uh, Thessalonians three eleven. So let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, start with a word of prayer here this evening. Lord, again, I thank you for the privilege to uh, study the Word. I pray it would be a profitable study as we hit the highlights here in First Thessalonians and, and follow uh, the thought through here as far as what Paul is wanting to communicate to these uh, Thessalonian believers. So I ask your blessing on our study, also the other classes. Thank you for all the workers, the teachers, people helping in the kitchen, everywhere. Uh, we just thank you for each one. Bless our labors now for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, First uh, Thessalonians chapter three verse eleven. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Often we ask the Lord for direction. Here He's really asking the Lord to physically direct them. He's been wanting to visit these people, uh, kind of as a follow up for a while, as far as uh, helping them grow. And so He's asking the Lord to direct His way to them. Skip that first paragraph. The second paragraph says, Paul's prayerful desire <clears throat> is that God may direct his path to where he can personally come and see them. So that's what he's asking the Lord for and, and looking to the Lord for. Uh, let's go to the next page, page uh, 33, and uh, jump down to uh, the, about the middle of the page, right under the insert there. The subject is God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, and the subject is linked by the singular himself and direct. Grammatically, the unity of their persons is linked with the activity. This underscores the deity of Jesus Christ as he is linked with God the Father in regard to specific prayer. And often we see this. So often in the New Testament, the linkage is there between Jesus Christ and God the Father. Uh, grammatically linking them really uh, as a unit. Okay, jump uh, down, uh, skip that next paragraph. There is also a very distinct emphasis on the reality of Jesus being the Lord, meaning master of believers. The Greek literally reads, the Lord of us, Jesus. This clearly shows that true Christians accept this person as their own Lord. They ascribe full deity to him and personally apply that truth to themselves. Notice I got a kind of a little bit of commentary on lordship. Uh, I am a lordship guy, if you understand what I mean by that. I Really, what I mean by that, I could point to one verse where Thomas says, My Lord and my God, and Jesus says, You've believed. That's what I mean. No more, no less. It's a recognition of Jesus Christ for who he is. It's a matter of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a matter of accepting him for who he is as well as what he's done as our Savior. I think Savior and Lord is a package. That's where I'm at in my theology. So I say here, recognizing Jesus as Lord does not always mean we are consistent with that reality. We start out immature, and along the way there are many times when we all stumble and struggle. Yet down deep in the heart of every believer, we do recognize Jesus as our Lord God, who is our Master. It is the essence of true saving faith. Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For all believers there is one Lord, one faith. The oldest creed in Christianity is Jesus is Lord. However, according to Jesus, there are many who will say, Lord, Lord, on Judgment Day, but it will then be revealed that they were phonies, and Christ will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
The point is it must be real, and for true believers, it is. Okay, page 34. Uh, Note uh, the second paragraph down from the top. Note again, Paul is very cognizant of God's presence and recognizes his dependence upon God to direct his way. He is looking to God for very specific and definite leading. Uh, God is not random. As we look to him in specific prayer, we look for him to lead us very definitely. God is real and his guiding us is real. Did we turn the fans up? Is that what we did? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, we can definitely feel it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Note uh, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. Jump down a couple of paragraphs there. We need to be praying that God will make us more loving. We need to pray for other believers, that God will help them to be more loving. I mean, that's what Paul's praying for these Thessalonians, that they'd be more loving. Uh, I suppose we can always pray that prayer, right? You say, well, I'm loving enough. That's all you're going to (laughs) get. No, uh, we can all grow in love. No matter how loving we are, we're, we're far short of perfection yet. We champion God's love and life, and that is what is to be on display in our life. We are to be lovers, God's kind of lovers, loving with his love. Skip the next paragraph. This is the defining mark of true Christianity. We love, that's the Greek word agape, the intensive word for love, the, the word that is consistently used of God's intensive love. And so that's what is to define us. It is the reality of God living inside, living out his life through us. Jesus said it is by agape love that his disciples would be known. Okay, let's go to page uh, 35 and uh, down to the fourth paragraph. In the body of Christ are all sorts of different kinds of people involving different ages, differing levels of maturity, different tastes and likes, and different backgrounds. We are so different in so many ways. How in the world is this ever going to work? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, you throw a motley group of people together, such as ourselves, there's going to be a lot of differences, you know, a lot of different ways of looking at all kinds of different things. Well, it works because of the reality of a supernatural God who lives his love through us and enables us to forgive supernaturally. That is how God is glorified. He wants to put himself, his love on display in and through us. And we pray to that end. Uh, Paul was praying to that end for these folks. All right, let's go to the next page, page 36, top of the page. Note that the New Testament does make a distinction between love of the brethren and love of the lost. There is brotherly love, which also involves accountability to one another, and then there is evangelistic love in which we reach out with the love of Christ to the lost. But note the right hand of fellowship is reserved for fellow believers. With the lost, we walk this line of evangelistic love, And yet at the same time, we practice biblical separation, as Paul emphasizes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So there are these tensions. Uh, You know, it's not like we're saying, well, hey, there's the right hand of fellowship of love I'm extending to unbelievers. No, no, no. We practice biblical separation, and yet we're reaching out with them with the love of Christ evangelistically. So so there are those balances there. All right, 1 Thessalonians 3.13. So that he may establish your heart's He's praying for them that they would be more loving and be loving 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Well, this gives us a clue as to what God's looking for and what's the evaluation before God going to be all about. I tell you, it's going to be a lot about love. Love and holiness, those two things. But here the emphasis is love. Skip the next couple of paragraphs. The thought of verse 13 is a continuation of that which began in verse 12. The goal of their growth in love is to the end that they may be strengthened in their hearts and thereby be found blameless in holiness. Uh, Jump down to the bold, note the linkage between love and holiness. So many miss this. Many now claim that acceptance of immorality is love. Oh, you're a hater if you take a stand against immorality, right? I mean, that's what the world thinks out here. They want to put us in the hatred camp. We're haters because we're taking a stand. Uh, So they really are missing it. Uh, They take no stand here. They want to say this is loving. The problem is that worldly love is not biblical love. True biblical love lines up with holiness. This is what Paul is emphasizing. It is a love that develops holiness in the life. This is a kind of love and holiness God will be looking for on Judgment Day. Note that Paul immediately goes on to address matters of sexual purity as seen in chapter 4, just to show you how true that is. Okay, page 37. Right in the middle of the page there, in view in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, is the final accounting that believers will give before God in terms of the stewardship of this life. The issue is rewards. And the basis of evaluation will be our faith life, our love life, and the holiness of life, which are all interconnected. So you see uh, in this immediate context, uh, this emphasis, their faith, their love, their holiness. And he's praying in regards, uh, especially in relation to, to their love. But there's an emphasis on all three of these. And I think this is the great is- these are the great issues of life in terms of Christian stewardship, in terms of how we should then live. Uh, note the bottom of the page. <clears throat> a football coach one time challenged his team before a Super Bowl. Men, one hour of work, a lifetime of glory. Brothers and sisters, a short time of faithful service here in this life and eternity of glory in the kingdom. It will be worth it all. Live for Jesus. Let his love and holiness shine through you every day. Okay, let's go to the next page. Top of page uh, 38. And largely tonight, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, this, is, this is where we're going to camp tonight, okay? This, this is one of the great chapters in the New Testament. Uh, this is the key chapter related to what we call the rapture, right? And so we'll get into that as we go along here. But before he gets to the rapture, he gets how we should then live in terms of moral purity. And that's uh, the other great emphasis in chapter 4. So note I say at the top of the page here, page 38, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 addresses the essential concerns Paul had regarding gaps in the newfound faith of the Thessalonians. At the end of chapter 3, Paul prayed that they would continue to grow in love, which results in holiness. That is... This is what will matter on Judgment Day. Now in chapter 4, he fleshes out what true love, which produces holiness, looks like in practical reality. The world talks about love, but they often often really mean lust. For the true Christian, true love is defined in terms of moral purity. All right, let's look at it. 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us 
how you ought to walk and please God. So be growing in this. That's his, that's his desire for them. Go to the middle of the page. In the Christian life, there is always room for more spiritual growth. No one has arrived. We should always be seeking to progress, uh, which is what the word walk describes. You know, when you're walking somewhere, you're making constant progress. And that's the idea here. Okay, let's go to page 39. And uh, top of the page, uh, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. There are commandments, right? There are commandments. Uh, you say, well, we're under grace, there's no commandments. Well, no, that's not true. We are under grace, but there are, under, there are commandments under grace. Uh, the word commandments refers to an authoritative order such as would be handed down by a military superior. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Paul and his co-workers gave the commandments, but the authority behind them was the Lord Jesus. Notice he says, uh, which we gave you through the Lord Jesus. As an apostle, Paul spoke as Christ's authoritative representative. Now, as New Covenant believers, we are not under the Old Testament Mosaic law. We're not under the law. I mean, that's not the code that we live under today. However, we are under the law of Christ. So it's not like we're under no law whatsoever. We're under the law of grace, under the law of Christ, however you want to say it. Really, another way to say this, and I'm getting ahead of myself is really the law of love, which is the law of love. This code of love is now to govern our lives, and it consists of all the various commandments we are given in the New Testament. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to do anything our flesh desires. No. Rather, it is the freedom and power in Christ to now obey his commandments and live out his love. We are no longer under a legalistic code, but we are under a code of love. This is what is to govern our lives. So the question is, are you breaking the law of love? That becomes the, the ultimate issue. Okay, jump down under the, uh, the reference there in Galatians to 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Very clear statement here. You don't have to wonder about this. In particular, Paul zeroes in on one particular command that is prominent in his mind, surely at this point, namely the command to abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God. And by the way, the world is crazy about this stuff. It is true this sets us apart as Christians. Uh, politically, socially, what's going on out here in the world, so much to do with sexual issues. Uh, perversion, sexual perversion issues. Uh, you know, doing away with the old ways. Anyway, uh, This is the will of God, meaning the desire of God. This is our sanctification. This word sanctification is the same word translated holiness in verse 7. It literally means to be set apart. What makes us different from the world? What sets us apart as true believers? Well, one key thing is to be sexual purity. This is our very sanctification. This is to set us apart. When it comes to sex, we are to be absolutely holy. In view of practical sanctification, the Bible teaches three aspects of sanctification. So uh, here we are. We are talking about uh, positional sanctification. We are made perfect by the blood of Jesus. And then there's practical or progressive sanctification where we grow in Christ-likeness. This never changes. We are growing in our walk as we mature in practical reality. And then there's perfected sanctification, which we will not 
have until we get to glory. But these are the three aspects of sanctification that we find in the New Testament. If you're looking for one reference, I love Hebrews 2, uh, 10, 14, where it says here, for by one offering he is perfected forever. That's our position. You can't be any better than perfected forever. I mean, that's your position. We'll always, no matter what happens in your practice, if you're a true believer, this is your position forever and ever. Amen. But if that is true, if you are one that knows this perfected sanctification, the rest of the verse also applies. Those who are being sanctified, practical sanctification. Okay, this is your position, but God is at work in your life to bring you along practically to be more like Christ as well. And he disciplines all of his children to that end to build holiness into their lives. All right, uh, under uh, the reference of 1 John 3, 2. In the process of our practical sanctification, God wants us to be sexually pure. When we come to Christ, it's a new start, right? And actually, I guess I want to say, even as a Christian, if you, if you fall into sin... Isn't it a glorious reality that you can start again? <laughs> uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, uh, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We get back on our feet and we go from, we go from there. I mean, how wonderful that is, that reality. And, and we all, on some level, know that reality. But uh, when we come to Christ, it's a new start. We are new creations in Christ. We go from there. When we stumble, we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us. But as God's children, he expects us to walk in sexual purity. I mean, that's, the, that's what he plainly says here. Don't say, well, it's no big deal. If you it is a big deal. And he's making that emphasis here. And even as brand new Christians, he warned them. He didn't say, well, we'll wait till you get a little more mature, and then I'll tell you some of the deeper. No, no. He told them this right from the very get-go. And he's emphasizing this here. There are many things in life we wonder about concerning what is God's will. But we don't have to wonder about this. It is explicit. God's will for us, the very thing that sets us apart from the unbelieving world, is sexual purity. Okay, uh, let's come across the page all the way down, page 40, under the... Uh, well, let's go down to Ephesians 5.3, where Paul says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as it is fitting for saints. Let there not even be a hint of it, is the idea. Uh, under that, uh, we have to guard ourselves against even a hint of lust. Sexual holiness sanctification involves not even a hint of compromise. Holiness is a no-compromise kind of thing. Uh, as to our sanctification, our lives are to be in stark contrast with the world, and it will be. I mean, all you need to do is just stand for sexual purity, and the world will think you are crazy. I mean, they don't, they don't understand this at all. They, they live for this. It's in their speech. It's in their talk. It's in their jokes. I dare you. Try turning on a late night show and see if you can get five minutes into it without a sexual innuendo of some type or other. It will not happen. It's just everywhere. Well, it could happen somewhere, but it's going to be a rare day. Anyway, footnote. <clears throat> this is not to say that sex is a bad thing. It's bad outside the bounds of biblical marriage, but within the context of marriage, it's a good thing. It was God's idea. He ordained it, but he ordained it within the context of marriage. All right, let's go to page 41, top of the page. 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, that each of you, we could all point to each other, right? That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, there are two schools of thought uh, regarding how this verse concerning the phrase uh, possess his own vessel should be understood. Uh, some understand uh, possess his own vessel is the idea of to obtain a wife. Well, 
That's not, you know, <laughs> you can't just go out down to the market and grab one, you know, whatever. Uh, to control your own body. I, I think the context argues for view number two. Note the language of each one of you. Uh, then jump down to just under the Edmund Hebert quote. The strong know their weakness. And when it comes to immorality, most people are vulnerable. I mean, if, unless, you're norm, uh, unless you're not normal, you're vulnerable. That is why the Bible says, flee sexual immorality. Joseph remained pure because he ran. Job made a covenant with his eyes not to look upon a young woman. And then Romans 13 says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, and not in strife and envy. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. You know the thing about lusts? They never get any better. Uh, they're going to be there until the end. And so you have to deal with it. Don't make provision for it. Don't make yourself vulnerable. Don't put yourself in that position. And people sometimes can be so foolish. It's like, yeah, you go there, you are asking for trouble. Uh, make no provision for the flesh. Verse 5, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This characterizes the lost. They live according to the passions of the flesh. If it feels good, do it. Knowing how to control our bodies in sanctification is in stark contrast to the out-of-control lusts of the world. They carry on with the passion of lust because they do not know God. I mean, knowing God makes a difference in your life, right down to the reality of what's your sexual life. As seen earlier, those who live this way as a lifestyle don't know God. When we say Jesus is Lord, that means something in relation to our sex life. But for the world, Jesus is not Lord. Their own self, their own passions is their God. They live for self-gratification. Okay, let's come across uh, way down, page 42, way down, just above the Galatians 5.24 quote there. The God of sex is one of the greatest of all false gods. This passion is impossible to overcome within our own strength. It only happens through knowing God. We need God's help. We need God's strength. Okay, let's go to page 43. He's not done with this topic yet. Verse 6, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. Notice, he says, I I warned you right from the very beginning. How long had he spent at Thessalonica when he was there? Three weeks. He was not with them for a very long period of time. And boy, he hammered this. He says, we also forewarned you and testified. Take advantage of literally means to step over. It is to violate the boundary of sexual purity. God has written no trespassing over every person who is not your legally married spouse. And someone has said that he has posted all trespassers will be prosecuted. The word defraud literally means to wrong or overreach and so to cheat or rob another person. It is crossing a forbidden boundary. It is going into territory that is clearly marked out of bounds. And notice who the concern is about. Uh, Defrauding a brother, a sister, a fellow member in the family of God. Brother is always used to Paul to denote a fellow believer. Paul is addressing them as a community of believers. To violate a fellow believer in the matter of sexual purity is what is in view. Of course, there is application to anyone, but the brotherhood is especially in view here. It's a really serious matter. Uh, I've got 10 dating guidelines, but we're not going to go through that, you know. 
I kind of did this in relationship to my girls. But anyway, uh, underneath that, the warning for sexuality taking advantage of a brother or sister in the Lord is strong. Basically, it is telling us that God will punish that person. The concept of avenger is one who brings judgment on those who violate the law. Really, the the law of God's love. That's what you're really violating uh, when you do this. Uh, Next uh, paragraph. In this case, the agent who executes judgment is God. How God does it and what it involves is not said, but be very sure he will avenge all such immorality. One cannot outrun God or the consequences. Okay, page uh, 44, and right above the uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 reference. Even as new believers, Paul had strictly warned them about this. We need to talk to new converts about sexual purity and warn them that as God's children, they must completely abandon sexual immorality. It's not a suggestion. It's very strong. Uh, The word testified is an intensive form, literally meaning earnestly testified. So, I mean, he was strong in making this point with them. I don't think we should be timid about it. And sometimes we are. You know, it's like, oh, man, this is going to really, you know, come off strong. Yeah, it should. Verse 7, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. The Christian calling is not to uncleanness, as so often defined the pagan religions and their immoral rites. Rather, God has called us in holiness to moral and sexual purity. Uh, So this is our very calling. I mean, we are called to sexual purity. Verse 8, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who also has given us his Holy Spirit. Two issues here. First, this is not the commandment of man. This is not merely what some man says. Rather, it's what God says. This is directly from God. Uh, therefore, to reject what is being said about sexual morality is to reject God. So if somebody wants to take this on, it's kind of like, okay, you're taking on God. You're defying God. This is not just what I'm saying or somebody else. This is what God has to say. They're rejecting God. Serious statement. The second point is that God has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to live holy and sexually pure lives. We are not left to do this on our own. God has given us his Spirit His Holy Spirit. And I like to emphasize the first name of the Holy Spirit is Holy. Right. Exactly. Okay, let's go to the next page. Page uh, 45. Third paragraph down. God's word is true. The will of God, our very sanctification is that we as believers should abstain from sexual immorality. Do not be deceived. Those who reject this are rejecting God and what he says. God help each one of us to be faithful in this matter of sexual purity. It is what defines authentic Christianity. Be among those who, earnestly, who are earnestly contending for the faith in these dark days of apostasy. Be a contender, not a pretender. And then jump down just above the, uh, the next uh, reference there, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4.9. In 1 Thessalonians 4.9 through 12, we, have, we find that Paul goes on to further exhort them regarding brotherly love and the importance of living a properly ordered life. So notice what he says, verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. 
Uh, jump down towards the bottom of the page there. The phrase brotherly love is actually one Greek word, namely the, the word Philadelphia, uh, which is spelled just like the city of Philadelphia. So the word Philadelphia is a Greek word, which literally means brotherly love. So we really have uh, these three key Greek words. Uh, phileo refers to affection or, or friendship. Uh, Adelphos, uh, brother. And when you put that together, you have Philadelphia, brotherly love. And so that's the word that we're talking about here. Okay, page 46, top of the page there. The normal use of the word Philadelphia refers to the love between those who have the same father. It refers to family love. The New Testament then applies this to the spiritual family of God who all have the same spiritual father. It speaks of the special love bond that those in the family of faith share. Uh, Note the next paragraph. Note that Paul uses the word agapao. Agapao is the verb. Agape is the noun. A little later in this very same sentence, in a parallel sense with Philadelphia, the corresponding usage of the root word phileo and agapao is seen in various places in the New Testament. Therefore, it is the position of some that these two Greek words for love are always synonymous. And sometimes they are, no doubt about it. Others, however, argue that agapao is the stronger word for love in the New Testament, while phileo is a weaker word. We know that indeed sometimes they are used in a way that is essentially interchangeable. That said, it is true that consistently... By far the majority, the, the strongest expression of love in the New Testament is the word agapao. For example, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, uses the word agape throughout, uh, culminating with, but the greatest of these is love. In 1 John 4, 8, when John says that God is love, he uses the word agape. In Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the Spirit is said to be agape. This is the consistent pattern and precedent in the New Testament. So sometimes it would appear that phileo and agapao are essentially used interchangeably, but at the same time, agapao is the word that is consistently used in the New Testament to express God's love in the superlative. Okay, uh, let's jump down here. Um, Let's go down the the next page, actually, page 47. Top of the page. Paul says that concerning brotherly love, this special family love that defines God's people... Uh, There was no need for him to write to them because, in fact, God himself teaches them to love one another. Uh, How does God himself teach us, do you suppose? Well, he teaches us through the Word. I think he teaches us by way of the Spirit working through the Word. Uh, They are present tense being taught by God. This is an ongoing lesson in love. This refers to the sphere of the heart where the ministry of the Spirit is taking place. Back in verse 8, Paul emphasized the ongoing present tense ministry of the Spirit's presence with special emphasis on him being the Holy Spirit. Now in the very next verse, he emphasizes the ongoing present tense ministry of God that teaches us to love one another. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live sexually pure lives and schools us in the love of God for one another. Because of his ministry, we intuitively know of his love. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. The essence of the new commandment is that God puts his law in our minds and writes it on our hearts. This is part of that new covenant relationship that we now have with God. Uh, And what is this law? Well, it is the law of Christ, which is the law of love. 
And uh, we've got all kinds of verses that relate to that as we look down the page there. But note towards the bottom, the last reference, so strong is this reality of God-taught love that John says, we know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So it is one of the defining uh, marks, kind of the, the main uh, defining mark of, as far as conversion. All right, top of page 48. The defining trait of true Christianity is that we have all learned something of Christ's love. There is a bond of love between believers. This love is not something we came up with on our own, but it is taught to us by God. The very instant we believe, the God of love comes to indwell us. And from that moment, he begins to personally teach us about love. Note in verse 8, the emphasis is on, his, on holiness. And in verse 9, it is on love. These are the two great distinctive emphases related to the Spirit's ministry. If one really has the Holy Spirit, the fruit will be something of his love and something of his holiness in the life. I believe this, these are the true great emphasis in the Christian life. Love and holiness. Let's jump down here. Um, I guess the next paragraph there. All those who are truly saved are taught by God to love one another. God is a good teacher. So why do so many who claim to be God's children seem to get an F on periodic exams? <laughs> that's, that's a good question, isn't it? Uh, you know that old poem, to dwell above with saints in love, oh, that will be glory. But to stay below with saints, I know, well, now that's another story, right? It, it can be challenging to love as we ought to love. Uh, the problem might be that many are simply professors and not really possessors. It might be that they don't really have the Holy Spirit or are not regenerate, have never become partakers of the divine nature. Then again, as believers, it is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit, as Paul says. That is why we have so many exhortations in the New Testament to be obedient children. Hebrews 12 is clear that God disciplines all of his children to build holiness into their lives. <clears throat> children that are rebellious have to learn the hard way and if they are over-rebellious, there is a sin unto death talked about in 1 John 5, 16. So predominant and so real is the ministry of the Spirit in the life of the true believer that Paul says he doesn't even need to address the fact of loving one another. God intuitively is ever teaching them in this regard. And I would remind us of the new commandment that Christ gave in John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love uh, for one another. Verse 10, 1 Thessalonians 4, 10. And indeed you do so. You are loving one another with this brotherly love. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. You're doing it, but I want you to do it more. You're already loving. You started out the whole book with that emphasis. But he wa I want you to do more. Note that Paul started the letter speaking of their labor of love, the, verse, the third verse in. And on that basis, knowing of their election by God. They were those who believed in a saving way, so the word of God was effectively working in them. The fact that they were true Christians and thus taught by God to love one another was clearly seen in their love toward all the brethren in the Roman province of Macedonia. Let's go to the next page, page 49. And uh, the second paragraph there. 
Thus, these believers in Thessalonica were already loving the brotherhood as they were taught by God. They did not need to be taught to love fellow believers, but note they did need to be urged on to do so more and more. We need encouragement, right? We need encouragement to do what we already know we should be doing and what we are already doing. They knew the fact of it, but they needed to be exhorted to excel in it. It's not often, is this not often the case? We know about the love of the brethren. Uh, We do it, but there is so much more we could do in this regard. God doesn't want mediocre love. Uh, He wants that which is abounding and overflowing more and more. This idea of increasing and abounding more and more in God's love is a major emphasis in this part of the book as it, as it is stated three times. And uh, with that, we're going to leave off here. But uh, the question here, and what does God's love abounding and increasing in the life look like? Well, Paul goes on to mention three things that define this kind of love. And uh, we'll get to that right after the break. Any questions? We have two minutes. If you have questions. I'll try to answer them. I guess not. Okay. Let's pray together then. Lord, again, we thank you for this time in the Word, and I pray that you bless our uh, fellowship time now as we have the break, and uh, thank you for the food, for the hands that have prepared it. Again, we thank you for this portion of the Scriptures. Help us indeed to love one another uh, as you call us to do. Uh, Lord, it is, it is kind of a radical thing uh, to love as, as you love. And, Lord, this is what we are called to do as, as your people. Certainly, it's, uh, it relates to uh, morality, that we treat each one, uh, one another in holiness, uh, sexually. And then, Lord, as we uh, consider these other things that he has to say here as well after the break. So, again, thank you for this time together. And uh, bless our fellowship time now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Very good.
get started as far as our second session here. I'll give you a minute. Let's go. No, I'm just kidding. All right. We are getting started here, page 49, and uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Remember, he's emphasizing uh, abounding in love, and uh, you know what love does? What does it do? Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, First Peter. Uh, what else does it do? Anything else? Yeah, what I'm really looking for is it thinks of others, right? And uh, that's really where it goes here. First uh, Thessalonians 4, 11, middle of page 49. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. This is a great verse. Uh, in short, this exhortation is to counter restlessness, meddlesomeness, and idleness. Paul begins by saying, aspire to lead a quiet life. Literally, this reads, strive eagerly to be quiet. Wow. How about this for a, a possible life verse? Uh, there you have it. A New Testament verse says, do your best to shut up. <laughs> uh, you know, really. Uh, strive eagerly to be quiet. Uh, jump down, skip that next paragraph. Evidently, there was a spirit of fanaticism on the part of some. They were so wildly excited about the Lord's coming that they were out of balance. Uh, they were all agitated, frantically rattling on and on about the coming of Christ. But in the process, they were becoming a nuisance and a bad testimony. Paul tells them to settle down, cultivate a lifestyle of balanced calmness. Let's go to page 50. Uh, jump down to the... Uh, the John Wesley quote, he was asked, what would you do if you knew the Lord was coming in three days' time? And Wesley replied, I would just do the work I've already planned to do, ministering in one place, meeting my preachers in another, lodging in yet another place, till the moment came that I was called to higher service. You know, so I just keep on doing what I'm doing. That's a great question to think about, isn't it? If you knew the Lord was coming in three days, what would you do? Probably rearrange your schedule, Right. We might have an emergency prayer meeting. <laughs> uh, he says, I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing. Paul's second instruction in verse 11 is to mind your own business. How about this? First, Paul says, be quiet in a nice sanctified way. And then he says, mind your own business. Next paragraph. Evidently, many of these people who were fanatically excited about the Lord's coming were not only obnoxiously loud about it, they were also just vegging out. Evidently, they had the mindset that said, why should we hold jobs or do anything since Christ is going to be coming right away anyway? What happens when people are idle, just sitting around? Well, they meddle. They meddle in other people's affairs. They become busybodies who stick their nose in other people's business. That is breaking the law of love. Let's go to the next page, page uh, 51. The third problem addressed is that of idleness. Evidently, there was a concern that some were just being lazy as they sat around waiting for the coming of the Lord. They were moochers, sponging off the generosity of other believers. This, again, is not in keeping with love. It takes advantage of others. So he's really zeroing in on certain areas where this is really kind of breaking the law of love. You're not thinking about others. You're just thinking about yourself here. That's not love. Uh, come down to verse 12 that you may walk properly toward those that are outside and that you may lack nothing. Not only are these exhortations in keeping with brotherly love, they're also important in terms of the witness of the church to the lost. What kind of testimony are those 
that are loud, meddlesome, and lazy. A bad one. What kind of change of life does that represent? It looks pretty much like the same old flesh worn by the world. Okay, page 52. And the middle of the page. Note the goal here, that you may lack nothing. Paul is not speaking in an absolute sense because many other scriptures show that we need each other. He is talking about being financially self-supporting and self-sufficient to the extent that we are able with God's help. That's a wonderful blessing, right? Where I, you know, we're able to take care of our, our needs. We know God's the one who supplies it, but uh, where we're responsible to do that. It's not a good testimony to be a parasite and just live off of others. The welfare mentality that says, I will just let someone else take care of me is not a good testimony. Uh, note that I set up there earlier to the extent that we are able. There are situations where, you know, <laughs> you're in a situation where, praise the Lord for some help, uh, whatever the source may be, because we actually need it. And even the older widows who don't have any other source, you know, there is a responsibility for people to take care of them. They shouldn't feel guilty and say, well, hey, I can't do it, and so therefore I'm, I'm deficient in some way. The issue is if you're able. These people are able to do it, and they're just not, they're just being lazy. So that's the whole context here. Of course, we are all dependent upon God to provide our daily bread. So self-sufficiency here is not to be thought of in terms of not being dependent on God. The emphasis here is that of human responsibility. It's a given that we need to depend on God. Okay, let's go to the next page, page uh, 53, and under the... uh, under the poem there, keep the balance. We need to be focused on the Lord, but we also need to be responsible workers. The balance of 1 Thessalonians is work while waiting. That's the balance. Work while waiting. Yes, we're waiting, but in the waiting, we are working. God help us to be good testimonies and lead balanced lives that reflect true Christian love. Okay, next page, uh, page 54, second paragraph there. There are many passages that touch on the rapture, but there are three key passages in the New Testament. And you know where they are, right? John 14, 1 Thessalonians 15, and then 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 is the seminal or classic rapture passage. This is the key passage in the New Testament. There are the others. There's the three key ones. Like I say, every morning when I open up my blinds, I've got three of them, and I reference in my mind these three passages. Almost every morning. Uh, The next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. As a framework, we note that the Old Testament from Genesis on essentially deals with Israel. I mean, when God called Abraham, he went about to build a special nation called Israel, starting in Genesis 12. And so that's the bulk of the Old Testament scriptures. Then God temporarily set Israel aside, and there is the church age. That's where we live. When God completes his church, which which concludes at the rapture, Then he will come back and complete his program with Israel. So a general overview of redemptive history looks like this. In general, from Genesis 12 on, you got Israel. Now Israel's been set aside. God's doing a brand new thing called the church. We live in the church age. Also called the age of grace. Sometimes called the age of the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, it's the Holy Spirit that really is the, uh, the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit unites us all into one body. Uh, the church age. When the church is complete, God will come back and complete his program with Israel. So it's just, you know, in your mind, kind of a good way to think about redemptive history from Genesis 12 on. Verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. 
Doesn't want us to be ignorant. Wants us to realize some things here about those who have died. And I love this passage. It's, it's very comforting to think about. Uh, jump down to under the footnote. Uh, sleep is a metaphor for death in the New Testament uh, used uh, for believers uh, who have died. And I love that metaphor. You, you know, sleep is a temporary condition, right? There's going to be a great awakening in the resurrection. Uh, top of page 55. Proper understanding is key to properly coping with sorrow over departed loved ones who were believers. Those who are unbelievers have no hope. Hope is a certain expectation. It's an anticipation of God fulfilling his promises. So note that uh, what he says there, um, I don't want you to sorrow as others who have no hope. We have a hope. We have a certain expectation related to the future. Uh, Come down to verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, right? Yep. Yep. Even so, God will bring with him. Where are they they coming from? Well, they're coming with God, Jesus God. Uh, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The if here is a first-class condition in the Greek, which means this could be translated as sense. The hypothesis is assumed to be true. It is assumed that, indeed, they did believe that Jesus died and rose again. For Paul, this is shorthand summary of the gospel, right? He says, Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. That's the gospel. And so this is really, for Paul, shorthand for the gospel. Okay, page 56, second paragraph. Paul here explains the process that culminates in the resurrection of those who sleep in Jesus. It begins with those asleep in Jesus coming from heaven with him. I mean, that tells you where they're at right now, right? If they're coming with him, they're, they're right there in heaven. When believers in the church age die, they immediately go to heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, that, that's a quick trip, you know what? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Doesn't take long to get there. <laughs> you know, I, we can't imagine what that's going to be like. Um, you know, I, I'd rather not experience it. You know, I'm hoping Christ will come in my lifetime. But either way, it'll be good, right? It's all good. Uh, that is where the souls of departed believers reside. But here we see that one day those departed souls will come with Jesus. Not only is Jesus coming, those departed souls are coming with him. So they're making the return trip together, those souls of, of those departed believers. The phrase, who sleep in Jesus, is more literally, who sleep through Jesus. Uh, We're going to go on. Let's go on to page 57. And the top of page 57, there's a lot of commentary here, by the way. You know, I encourage you to study the whole commentary if you've got the time to do so. I'm hitting the highlights, connecting the dots. Um, But 1 Thessalonians 4.15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. You you know what that, that, that's that's a statement of authority. This isn't his idea. This is the word of the Lord. That we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. What Paul has to share with with them at this juncture is not a matter of mere opinion. This, he says, is by the word of the Lord. This is a matter of divine revelation and therefore has the authority of God behind it. Uh, Jump down underneath the the footnote there. At this juncture, Paul makes a very strong statement. The phrase will by no means is a double negative in the Greek. It's an emphatic way of saying that those who are still living will not precede those who have died. The word precede means to come before 
or to get a head start. The point is those who have died will have no disadvantage. Those living will not take precedence over them. Seems in their minds they were thinking, you know, our loved ones who have died, we're so expecting Jesus to come. It's going to be such an exciting time. But those who have died, are they going to be left out? Sometime later, maybe, you know, some, at some point later, they'll, they'll be resurrected too. Are they going to be left, you know, out of this event? And Paul is affirming, they are not going to be left out. Uh, he's, he's making that point very strongly. And here's what he says, down to verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord himself is in the emphatic position. This is not something the Lord will dispatch an angel to do, right? Uh, The Lord himself. This is the personal activity of the Lord himself. After his resurrection, Christ went back to heaven, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. At this point, he will arise from the right hand of God the Father and descend from heaven with a shout. That's going to be a loud shout. It's going to be heard all over the world by believers, for sure. Say, well, what about the unbelievers? Are they going to hear it? I don't know, but I know all the believers. uh, We're all going to hear it. The the dead in Christ, they're going to hear it. They're going to, you know, their souls are going back into those bodies, and they're coming coming back uh, in resurrected form. Uh, So note, the shout is a cry of command. It was often used of a military officer shouting out a command. There is intensity in the word. This is the summons of Christ to his church to meet him in the air. And like I say, this is for the first time the whole church is going to be there and we're all going to be on time, right? We're all going to be there. Uh, this is a partial fulfillment of John five twenty eight, when at the voice of the Son of God, those who are in the graves will come forth. And they will. What a day that's going to be. Top of page 58. This is the voice of authority like when Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth. As has often been pointed out, it's a good thing he specified Lazarus come forth. Because otherwise, all the graveyards would have been emptied. Yep, that's true. Okay, let's go to the next page. uh, Page uh, 59. Then there are various uh, trumpet judgments related to the tribulation period, which uh, signal judgment. Even the seven trumpets of uh, Revelation 11, uh, 15 through 17 is uh, the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11 through 15, 15 through 19 is not the last trumpet. It is the last trumpet of judgment. But there is yet another trumpet that calls for the elect as seen in Matthew 24. In general, the trumpets of God either signal judgment or they summons his people to assemble. As such, there are a variety of trumpets, but a trumpet signals a message of some kind. Here it signals the summons of the church to assemble to the Lord Jesus Christ in the air. Now, we have kind of worked our way through this in the past, but it's a fascinating study uh, to correlate the, the plan of God with the feasts of Israel. So I say it's fascinating to study God's redemptive program in relationship to the feasts of Israel. These feasts are outlined in Leviticus 23 and give an overview of God's program. And it's amazing how very specifically these tie with the first coming of Jesus Christ and even the church age, uh, which is hidden in the feasts of Israel in the sense that it began on the day of Pentecost. And so note those spring feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. Uh, those are the, the spring feasts. And then there's the summer feast, which is kind of the in-between feast. That fits, right? Where's the church? It's in-between reality. 
And, uh, you know, the, the meaning of the, the feast was kind of unclear. There's just a lot of things that relate to the church age there that's hidden. And then you have the fall feast, the trumpets, the uh, tomat, and uh, tabernacles. So note, Christ's first coming, Passover. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. We see he fits the typology there related to Passover. And then uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, sinlessness. We see that in, in Jesus Christ. And then the first fruits. His resurrection is the first fruits. And then we have the, the, the Feast of Pentecost. That relates to the church age, this period of interlude where we live. And then we believe these last uh, trumpets, or these last feasts, will relate to the Christ's second coming. First of all, the trumpets, assembly, call to repentance. I think there's going to be uh, the summons to the church to assemble, and there's also uh, a call to repentance then that goes out to Israel, which they will then respond to. Uh, we have the, the atonement, uh, which relates to repentance, and Israel will finally come to repentance. And then the, the Feast of Tabernacles, which relates to kingdom rest. Well, just as sure as the cluster of feasts related to Christ's first coming and the church age have seen fulfillment, just as sure will those feasts related to his second coming also be fulfilled. In the feasts of Israel, God has given us a general prophetic outline of redemptive history. Let's talk about the church for just a moment. The church age began suddenly with a sound from heaven like that of a rushing mighty wind on the day of Pentecost. And it will conclude just as suddenly when the Lord comes with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now there is discussion, as I say, who will hear this. Uh, will the whole world hear it, or will just the church saints involved hear it? It's a good question. Uh, we're not told. Many think that if the world does hear it, it may be like in John 12, when the people heard the voice of the Lord from heaven, but they were confused, thinking it to be a to be thunder or something else. We don't really know. We're not told. So we got to leave it there. All right, top of page uh, 60. Um, second paragraph there. And then uh, to Paul's point, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You see, they're not going to be left out. Uh, the dead in Christ will rise first. Note, this is a church-only event the phrase, in Christ, everywhere else in the New Testament refers to those saved during the church age. The dead in Christ, not the Old Testament saints. They're, they're going to be, when are they going to be raised? Well, at the second coming of Christ. Uh, Daniel 12 and so forth, very clear. At the second coming, those Old Testament saints uh, will be raised. But I don't think the Old Testament saints, they're not going to be raised right now. This is an, a church event. This is, a, this is a mystery that is now being revealed, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. The Old Testament saints' resurrection was not a mystery. It was revealed in the Old Testament. This is brand new truth related to a brand new reality called the church. All this is church truth here. It's in Christ. First to those in spiritual union with Christ as the body of Christ. As such, it refers to the universal church. Those in, for those in Christ, death does not change our position. Once you're in Christ, you're always in spiritual union with him as members of his body. So the phrase in Christ refers to the unique position of church age saints. All those who died in Christ during the church age will be raised with glorified bodies at this point. I can't imagine what it's going to be like to have a glorified body, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, no more pain, no more aches. Uh, man, it's all going to be, I'm sure we'll be looking at each other saying, you're looking mighty fine. And we will be. 
And we're going to have glorified bodies like Christ says. But notice, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we who are alive and remain, so some are going to be living, uh, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now there's an exact order here, as the dead are raised first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. We're going to join them. Great reunion. Uh, You know, separation is the law of earth. Reunion is the law of heaven. And that's what we have here. What a day. However, the time element here is so small that it's inconsequential. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, this whole transaction will take place in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. How long does it take to twinkle your eye? Not long. (laughs) Uh, And the main point is we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, We will all share in the same event as church-age believers, as those in Christ. We all share in the same destiny, both the dead in Christ and those still living at His coming. You see, we're still part of the same family. I mean, part of the church is in heaven right now. Part of the church is on earth. But this is the day we're all joined together. The whole body is going to be uh, presented together. The phrase caught up is the Greek word harpazo. It means to snatch up or to seize in a forcible way. It was sometimes used in reference to something being stolen. If a pickpocket stole your wallet, you might say, my wallet got raptured. Right? Yeah, yeah, that would be legit. Uh, That's the idea. It got snatched up suddenly. Some have therefore called the rapture the great snatch, right? That's it. Snatches us out of the world, just like that. People sometimes say the word rapture is not found in the Bible, but that is not really true. Uh, The Latin translation of of harpazo is rapturo, which is our English word rapture. So actually, the Latin Bible does have the actual word rapture, right? It's a Latin word that we have borrowed and used. But uh, the Greek word is harpazo, translated caught up. It's the same word uh, used of Philip when the Spirit of the Lord caught him away after the baptism of the eunuch, and he was found in another city. Uh, Skip the next paragraph. See the words of comfort here. Caught up together and with them. This is a time of great reunion. And boy, if you've got loved ones like I do that have gone on to heaven, you really are looking forward to this day. What a day, what a reunion that's going to be. Instantly, we shall all be assembled together. And of course, we'll recognize each other. Uh, What would the significance be of emphasizing together if we had no idea who each other was, right? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, That somehow doesn't seem to be comforting. Moses and Elijah were recognized on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus in his glorified body was recognizable after his resurrection. And we are going to have glorified bodies after the same fashion as his. Note the church meets her Lord in the clouds in the air. This is not the second coming in its fullness because Christ does not come all the way to the earth, right? Doesn't come all the way to the earth, which he will do at at the second coming in its fullness. He stops in the air and summons the church to himself there. This is the removal of the church from the earth before the day of judgment comes on the entire world. And by the way, you have no concept of the rapture in the Old Testament. That's why it's said to be a mystery that is now being revealed. The whole church is a mystery, including how it concludes at the rapture. This is all new church truth. And to somehow, uh, you know, 
confuse the church with Israel is a, is a major problem. All right, uh, page 61. Even though there's an emphasis on the reunion of saints, the major focal point is the Lord himself. Don't miss that. Uh, you know, we're not going to be looking for grandma first. <laughs> Praise the Lord if grandma's there. But the Lord himself is the main focal point here. We'll get around to all the saints. And it is, a, it is an emphasis here uh, together. The greatest thing, however, is that we're going to meet the Lord and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's the really big thing. And then uh, verse 18, 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Note the contrast between the sorrow of those who have no hope in verse 13 and the comfort that is afforded for the believer here in verse 18. So what, what, what a wonderful uh, reality this is, uh, uh, these comforting words. The word comfort can also have the nuance of encourage. So the idea is to comfort or encourage one another with these words. There is a reason that almost invariably at the funeral of a believer, these words are shared. This is our blessed hope. One day we're going to meet beloved or believing loved ones who have departed. We're going to meet the Lord. We're going to share in the eternal fellowship of the Lord forever. These are words of comfort, not terror for the true believer. Well, are we the terminal generation? Well, no one knows for sure, right? Paul thought perhaps he would be in that number that would be alive at, at Christ's coming. Then we, we who are alive, this is Paul speaking, then we who are alive, he expected to be part of the we. He wasn't. As he went along, he found out, nope, sorry, I, I, that's, I'm going to have to go. I'm, you know, I'm not going as one of those who are living yet. <laughs> uh, so we don't know. Uh, but uh, we continue to wait. Uh, Christ told us it's not for us to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Yet Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that we are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we know we live towards the end. And we really get a glimpse into that because of what? Well, Israel is back in the land. The stage is being set for that final events that will happen after the church is gone. So we really, you know, as Paul says in Romans 13, 11, and do this knowing the time, knowing the time. What time is it? Well, it's two minutes till eight. We all know that, right? Uh, knowing the time that it is now high time to wake out of sleep for now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We're getting closer and closer and closer. We know that we live at the time of the end and we're getting closer and closer all the time. Well, bottom of the page, in contrast to the event known as the rapture of the church is the day of the Lord which follows. Paul now deals with that subject in chapter 5. This is always the sequence. First, the rapture of the church. That's chapter 4. And by the way, chapter 4 becomes before chapter 5, right? Yeah, yeah, it does. And the contents of chapter 4 come before chapter 5. And there's there's a very key reason to know there's a clear distinction between those two, and it's how Paul begins the chapter in chapter 5. Uh, Perry Day is a, is a transitional uh, phrase, and we'll look at that tomorrow night. So first the rapture of the church, then the day of the Lord judgment that follows. All right, I got 30 seconds. Any questions? <laughs> I didn't think so. That's why we only left 30 seconds. Anyway, no, if you've got a question, that's fine. I'd be try- glad to try to answer it. Andrew, we miss you up there. You're the one that had the question. Okay, that's okay. That's okay. We, we can wait. <laughs> well, let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for uh, the word. And uh, we thank you for the blessed hope that we have. 
And uh, what a comfort it is to know what happens when we die. What happens uh, to our our loved ones uh, who have been believers who have died. Uh, Really, uh, the word that's used is they are asleep. It's a temporary condition. And uh, one day uh, you are going to return, Lord Jesus, and, and those spirits of those departed believers are going to be coming with you. And there's going to be a resurrection. Uh, those, those spirits are going to be reconnected with their bodies and they're, they're going to be raised in glorified form and we are going to be caught up to meet them all in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. What a wonderful hope this is. And so, Lord, uh, we don't know how long before this event transpires. It's really the next major event on your prophetic calendar and it's a church event uh, where you will bring the church to a conclusion as we enter into glory and go back to Father's house. Uh, Lord, what a, what a wonderful day that is going to be. So, Lord, help us to live in light of it. Help us to live holy lives, to be loving one another as you call us to do, uh, to be putting you on display in, in this way. So, again, we thank you for your word. May it bear fruit in our lives as we continue to study together. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope you can come back tomorrow night. We'll get into the day of the Lord tomorrow night. In fact, that's pretty much what we're going to cover, the day of the Lord tomorrow night.